We come to you this morning and recognize that you, the God of the universe, holds all things in your hands. It's a world that seems to be spinning out of control. It seems that pestilence, rumors of war plague us, and yet you're in charge. It's you who've placed the powers to be. It is you who allowed these things to occur. And it's ultimately for your purpose. And Father, in the midst of this, we are called to cling to the hope that we have because it's sure it's in you and our eyes need to be focused on you. And Father, this morning as we come to the word, I just ask that we could focus collectively on what you have for us. Open our hearts to the word. Thank you for these precious words that you have given to us so in it we can know what hope is so we can know how to have a relationship with you and that we can see you clearly it's in jesus name we pray amen if you would turn to luke 18 <clears throat> luke chapter 18 is where we are this morning as we've been journeying through this book I love the song that we just, at the tag end of the video, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It first appeared in 1918 in a pamphlet in London, England, though it was written by an American. Turn your eyes upon Jesus have theological truths that come ringing through the scriptures. And Luke's two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, is no exception. In fact, some would argue that eyesight or blindness is key to the entire two books. And you say, well, how can that be? If we were to look at the, in fact, it's booked end if you look at it, because the very first part of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, he quotes from Isaiah 61. He says, I've been sent to give sight to the blind. The latter part of Acts and Acts 28 Paul's imprisoned and he shares the gospel with the Jewish leaders in Rome and he, he also quotes from Isaiah but it's Isaiah 6 he says if you don't respond to the gospel if you reject it God will further blind your eyes interesting isn't it and so it shouldn't be a surprise that this scene in Luke 18 starting in verse 35 we find a very powerful and key element to the entire narrative, and that is giving sight to the blind. It is the only healing of sight in all of Luke's gospel. And in fact, this will be the last miracle we see as we journey into Jerusalem in the narrative. It's key. We've been moving along since chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to chapter 19. And we've been dealing with the topic of discipleship. And this blind man that has his eyesight restored is an object lesson on what it means to really see who Jesus is. It's also an indictment on those who should have seen and did not. So let's look at this text. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of the Gospels. I just love this passage. 1835. It says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. 
Matthew tells us that there's two blind men, and Mark tells us that this blind guy's name is Bartimaeus. But Luke has compressed the story. He's honed in on the particular man here, who Mark tells us is Bartimaeus. And when he heard a crowd going by, he might be blind, but he can hear. <laughs> he asked, what's going on? <clears throat> and they told him, well, Jesus the Nazarene is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. <laughs> and as he called this out, those who were in front scolded him to get him to be quiet. And he shouted even more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and ordered the beggar to be brought to him. I mean, someone's got to lead him, right? And when the man came near Jesus, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he replied, Lord, let me see again. That's key. John chapter 9, we have a blind man who was blind from birth. This fellow apparently at one time could see, and now he can't. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he regained his sight. And he followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they too gave praise to God. <laughs> Let's look at this scene. It, it, it's so powerful. You've got a man here that we meet as we come to the city of Jericho. Now, you need to know something about Jericho. In fact, I got even a map for you today. Uh, as we look at where Jericho is, it's circled in red. It's close to Jerusalem. It's 20 miles away. Jericho was a key stop for many pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the, the festivals. And so they'd walk, they'd come down the, the, the Jordan River rift down the valley area up to Jericho. And then they would take that 20 mile hike through the hills, what was called the desert to get to Jerusalem. It was quite a hike because Jericho is 800, about 850 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So we got a long hike to make. I have never walked it. My colleague has. I said, blessings on you. But it's a long hike, and it's through the desert, the wilderness, to get up to Jerusalem. And so Jericho becomes that hub. It's where many pilgrims would spend the night. And so here we have a beggar, which makes sense that he would be here where it's a major traffic flow, especially of those going to worship. And we're told, first of all, in the text, we're told that the man is blind. Again, Matthew will mention that there's two, and I think Luke is honing in. But this blindness is a curse on two fronts in the first century. First of all, you obviously have a physical problem, don't you? It's a serious health issue. This is pre-Braille. It's pre-electronics. It's pre-social services. There are no social programs. There's no medical assistant or ophthalmologist who are going to help this guy. This is why I think in the law, it's required, the Mosaic law, it was required that those who are blind, you are to help, Leviticus states. And later, it states that the blind, if you do not assist them, in Deuteronomy, it says you're to be accursed. So you were to provide for them physically. But here's the problem. By the first century, it also carried a social blight. You were seen as an outcast in first century Jewish world. Do you remember in John 9, the man who's born blind? What did the disciples ask? Who sinned? 
this man or his parents? And you go, oh, that's awful. What does Jesus state? Neither. It's so that God might be glorified in this man. But many in the first century Jewish world equated any illness and blindness was in that list of those who have been cursed by God. They've not been blessed. And so here you have this man who's blind. He, he's got the physical problems that come with it, but also the spiritual aspects of it, at least seen by the world in which he lives. Secondly, we're told, look at the text, it says he is sitting. I have a feeling he's been there for a long time. He's marked his seat along the road. <laughs> he knows this is where I'm going to be. In fact, the text tells us he's not only sitting, he's near the road where the pilgrims are coming. But it's a major thoroughfare. It's dusty. It's dirty. It's where the trash is. And that's where he's sitting. And the text tells us, if that's not bad enough, the text tells us he's begging. Dependence on others was considered extremely shameful in the first century world. In fact, there's a second century Jewish writing that a, a man helps his ex-wife because she's begging for her blind husband. And he just can't have that. It's so bad. Sirach states that uh, one, if, if they're going to beg, it would be better that they just die. It's so awful. A Jewish writing in the first century. Plato, you know Plato, right? You students out there. Uh, he, he wanted a state where all beggars are banished. It'd be the best to remove them altogether. In fact, a later rabbinic writing says, if you're going to beg, it'd be better that you worked on a Sabbath. <laughs> Giving you an idea of how horrific it was viewed by the Jewish world. And so place yourself in the shoes of this man. And in fact, in the first century world, we know 15% of the population were expendable. They were nothing. It was only about 2% who controlled 85% of the wealth. And, and so the poverty level was huge. In fact, some have argued you would have compassion fatigue. You know, oh, another beggar. Here we go. Keep on driving. Roll up the windows. Right? Keep the camel moving. We don't want to stop. It's all oh, there's another. And, and here's this fellow who, who is dependent upon others to assist him. There's no mention of a family member. There's no mention of a, a friend who's helping and it says in verse 36, when he heard a crowd going by, there were a lot of crowds going by, but this was atypical. He could hear. He knew something was different. And we know the crowd is large because in the next scene, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week is wee little Zacchaeus. Remember what Zacchaeus does? He climbs up at a tree because he can't see this one called Jesus and he can't get his attention. He can't get to him because the crowd is so large. And so here's this blind guy. He hears this crowd passing by. And by the way, I, 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 it's just so sad, isn't it? He's not part of the entourage. <laughs> He's not part of the in crowd. He stands on the margins of society. He's a social outcast. And so it says, he asked this crowd, who is this? What, what's going on? And well, they said, well, Jesus of the Nazarene, again, it's reiterated, he's passing by. He's going on. 
there are a lot of men named Jesus in the first century. And so to help identify which one, well, this is the one from Nazareth. Some scholars would argue this is really a play off of Nazar, which is the word Hebrew word for shoot or sprout that alludes to the shoot of Jesse that will spring forth. That is the line of David who will reign. And, and it's interesting that the blind man goes there because he says in the next verse in 38, he doesn't say, Jesus, the Nazarene, have mercy. He says, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. This is interesting. This is the only character in all of Luke's gospel who will refer to Jesus as the son of David. Oh, it's alluded to. Gabriel will tell Mary, remember, your son is going to be on the line of David and it's going to reign. This is exciting. But this is the first person to refer to Jesus as the son of David. Not the crown, not the disciples, but it's on the lips of a blind beggar. <laughs> Jesus, son of David. What does he mean by that? It's loaded, isn't it? It carries both nationalistic and militaristic notions. And, and by the way, we're moving fast to Jerusalem and what's coming up is the triumphal entry. And what do they cry? This, this is the king. This is the one we've longed for. This is the Meshua. This is the one we've waited for. This is the son of David, the king of the Jews. But more importantly, the son of David's title not only is he going to, his descendant reign, David's descendant reign, but interestingly, it rises above many of the titles given to Jesus because it's one that it is what is associated with it is healing. Now, let me explain this a little bit. I believe the beggar knew that the Messiah, when he comes, will bring healing. Jesus, when he spoke in the temple in Luke chapter 4, he reads from Isaiah 61. Remember, I mentioned this a little earlier. What does he say? I give sight to the blind. I make the lamb walk. The spirit of the Lord's on me. This is what I've been called to do. And I did, this is what is associated with the Messiah. Isaiah 35. Listen to this text. The wilderness and the dry land. That's Jericho. <laughs> That's this whole region. Jericho is hot. You take groups to Israel, you try to avoid being in Jericho very long in June and August. <laughs> it's roasty toasty. It's the part of the wilderness. It's the dry land. The desert shall rejoice, Isaiah 35. The blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy. The glory of Lebanon shall be given. They shall see the glory of the Lord, his majesty. Now listen text goes on strengthen the weak hands and make the feeble knees strong say to those who have an anxious heart be strong and fear not behold your God comes then the eyes of the blind shall be opened this is Isaiah 35 and the ears of the deaf unstopped then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness how does this whole scene end? What does it do? He followed Jesus, praising him, and the crowd praises. They rejoice. There it is. Luke's laying this out. This is Jesus. This is your Messiah. And we get to chapter 18 at the end here. And it's a 
It takes a blind man to show us, yes, this is the Messiah. This is the son of David. This is the one who brings healing. This is the one who brings salvation. This is the one who should cause us to rejoice. Now, if that's not exciting, I don't know what is. It's not a coincidence. In fact, we're going to look at several Old Testament texts that come screaming through. In Isaiah, the number one problem for Israel, and it's, you can see it all through the book, starting in Isaiah 6, you can see it here in 35. The problem is they're blind. They're spiritually blind to the things of the Lord. This blind man sees quite clearly, doesn't he? He understands that this is the son of David. You know what's interesting? It's not only in Isaiah. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, the Lord, take, the Lord takes out a paddle and he spanks the religious rulers really hard. He said, you should be shepherding my people, but you haven't. And I will send David and his descendants to shepherd my people. And listen what it says. He will bind up the injured. He will strengthen the weak. In other words, he will be a healer. He will bring restoration to my people. <laughs> and here's this blind man, Jesus of Nazareth. You got to be kidding. No, this is the son of David. No wonder he cries, have mercy on me. Did you catch that? He didn't yell, give me sight. No. He says, have mercy. He doesn't say, give me some shackles. I need some money. Mercy was always a sign of compassion and healing. It's seen throughout Luke's gospel. The last time we saw it was the rich man in Hades when he cries out, give me mercy. The blind man knows that only Jesus can meet his needs. <laughs> I love it. And what does the crowd do? Oh yeah, get him right up there in the front of the line. This is wonderful. Let him see Jesus. Let's have another miracle. Ooh, this is exciting. Notice what the crowd says. They scold him. Be quiet, shut up. What are you doing? Halt the clapper. You, you, you're not to draw attention. <laughs> and you ask why? Why would the crowd do this? There are several possibilities. They selfishly want a monopoly on Jesus' attention. We have him. He's ours, not yours. You see that. You see that even in the church. Perhaps it's, they're considered the, this beggar to be an extreme nuisance. Even the disciples did that with the kids, the children. Remember that scene? Or perhaps they were just embarrassed. This doesn't fit our pristine image of who Jesus should be, this crowd. Their understanding of Messiah is vastly different, I would argue, than the blind beggar. They never called him the son of David. The text shows they never cried for mercy, only the blind man. And this blind man, he, this isn't his first rodeo. <laughs> he knows that if he wants attention, he's going to have to speak a little louder. And he's got a set of lungs, because look what he does. Look what the text tells us. He says he shouted even more. You're not going to quiet me. <laughs> I'm already an outcast. I don't really care what you all think. I want his attention. So son of David, have mercy. He yells even louder. You got to love it, don't you? Uh, he, he's not afraid of, of being ostracized. <laughs> what he's afraid of is missing this one called Jesus. 
It's interesting in verse 38, the text states that he, he, he speaks out, which is more of an intellectual crying out. This is a desperate cry. It's a different term altogether. It was used of animals screeching. He, he's not going to sit by quietly, not, not at this point. And I love it. The music starts, doesn't it? So Jesus stopped. <laughs> no one's going to dictate Jesus' timetable. Yeah, he's headed to Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to die. But he still has compassion. And in Matthew's gospel, we're told he had compassion and he stops. He's never rushed. Garland in his commentary on Mark says, despite the shadow of the cross looming ever larger across his path, he can still hear the cries of others in distress. Isn't that great? And so Jesus has the blind man brought and he says to him in verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> I always thought, okay, Jesus is not an idiot. And he can see. So it should be pretty obvious. The guy is blind. He needs sight, right? And Jesus asks question. He asked the same question of James and John. And what did the sons of thunder say? Can we have a seat of honor? We want authority. We want power. What Jesus is doing, I believe, is... is asking this blind man to come to grips with what he really needs, what he, he wants. <laughs> He's not looking for power, prestige. What he desires is his eyesight, and the text tells us that. And as if nothing, it just, he says, receive your sight. There's no elaborate detail on the healing process, is there? there there's no choral, choral group breaking out in song. It's simply, He's healed. Isaiah 42, listen to this text from Isaiah. And I will lead the blind in a way, this is the Lord speaking, that they do not know, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. <laughs> Isn't that like our Lord? In the midst of all that's transpiring, he's gearing up for what lies in Jerusalem. He's trying to get the disciples. In fact, the earlier verses, verses 31 through 34, he's already informed the disciples what's going to happen. He, he, he has Zacchaeus that he's going to see next, which he knows about. And Zacchaeus, I mean, that's a key player. He's a politician. Get him saved. Woo! All right? A revival, a breakout. And then you got this blind beggar in the process. The text tells us in all three Gospels that he is immediately healed. Verse 43, he regains his sight. And I love this. It says he follows. The term occurs 17 times in Luke's Gospel, and it's always in the realm of discipleship. Mark 10 tells us that this man whose eyesight is restored throws off his cloak. I love it. His only earthly possession. Do you remember the rich young ruler? He had a lot of cloaks. They were all Armani's. Gucci, I don't know. I mean, he had it all. He said, I, I, I can't forsake all of that to follow you, Jesus. This guy, he throws it all. Cloak. And he, it's all he has. 
I think it's very symbolic because in Colossians 3, it, we are told to throw off the past and the clothing that we used to wear to follow, symbolically of course, to follow this one called Jesus. No one told him to do it. It was voluntary. It was unconditional. And here is Jesus on his way to die. And this blind man says, I'm following you. Mark says he follows Jesus on the road or the path or the way. <laughs> Can't you see the triumphal entry? Those palm leaves, Jesus on a donkey. That blind man is right there waving that palm leaf. That's my son of God, David, the one I'm following. Don't you love it? Just can't you see it? This is, this is the one. Take heed, listen. You know, it's interesting because we looked at the rich young ruler earlier in 18. Look at this comparison between the two. It's, as we, we follow this whole discussion of discipleship and we get to the latter part of 18, we meet these three figures and, and they're summing up all that we've discussed, all we've studied. And what do you see? The rich ruler, he's wealthy. I mean, he's got it together. His bank accounts are exploding. The text told us he's extremely wealthy. This guy, he's extremely poor. The one can see physically, but he's blind spiritually. The one cannot see physically, but can spiritually. The one is independent of others. And if anything, others are dependent on him. But the blind beggar, he's dependent on everybody else. The one addresses Jesus as the good teacher. The other addresses Jesus as the son of David. One lies and brags about his character. The other one openly admits, I need your mercy. I'm in need. The one refused to believe. The other wholeheartedly believes. One failed to follow. The other immediately follows. And one left away empty and sad. The other huh, obtained salvation and followed and praised. What a contrast. And it, 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 Luke, as he's laying this out, he says, look, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Luke 1, verse 53. He has filled the hurting with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Many Jews in the first century believed that worldly wealth was thought to be the primary cause of intellectual and moral blindness. <laughs> Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through a needle. And what did the disciples ask? Then who could be saved? A blind beggar. <laughs> An individual who understands that everything falls at Jesus' feet. This is the one that I am dependent on. This is where I find mercy. I bring nothing to the table. It's all about him. There are three points there in your notes that I just want to highlight as we look at these. First of all, the healing of our souls can only be found in Jesus Christ. Hmm. Psalm 135, I love this text. Listen to what it says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So Psalm 135, we got the Ashtaroth, we got the Baals, we got all these idols that they're worshiping. Listen to what the text says. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but they do not see. They have ears, they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. 
the rich young ruler. What's his idol? His wealth. <laughs> and, and because of it, he's blinded as to really who is this Jesus? The final verse of the Benedictus says this one is to give light, to guide our feet. In chapter 1, verse 79. I love the lyrics of an old hymn. It says, Long by sin my eyes were holden, weary years and blindness spent. Wasted were the hours all golden, all my life on pleasure bent. Till one came in love and mercy, touched my eyes and sight did bring. At his feet I fell and worshipped, for my eyes have beheld the king. At his feet I fell and worshipped, my eyes have beheld the king. Do you really see who Jesus is this morning? Talking about obviously metaphorically, but do you understand that this Jesus is the only one who can bring healing and restoration? If you don't, you need to turn to him before it's too late. The rich young ruler went away sad. But oh, the blind beggar, not only did he have his eyesight restored, he has the glorious opportunity to follow Jesus. The rich young ruler, he forfeited all of that. <laughs> now leads us to the second. With restored spiritual eyesight, we need to follow passionately after the Lord. I have a friend who is constantly, he constantly complained that, oh, I cannot see, I have trouble reading. I finally got up enough gumption to say, hey, you know what? Maybe you should see an ophthalmologist or an optometrist or somebody. See an eye doctor, get a set of glasses. He looked at me and goes, I do have an eye, a pair of glasses. He goes, I just never wear them. When you think about it, those of us who've had corrected spiritual eyesight, what are we doing with it? And how do you compare that? I mean, think about this. Your spiritual glasses cost far more than any pair you purchased at Costco or wherever. It cost Christ's life. And rather than the case that you received with those new pair of glasses and perhaps a cloth to clean them, you received far more with corrected spiritual vision, did you not? You received a relationship with the Lord and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Corrective lenses, yeah, they're great. The problem is you get older and you need more checkups and newer strengths of glasses, right? And on it goes. Here's the good news. With spiritual lenses, it's a lifetime guarantee. Oh, come bask at the foot of our Savior. See this one who is the son of David, the glorious Messiah. And if you have, then we're called to, to follow. <laughs> we're called to embrace. Psalm 146, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who bow down. The Lord loves the righteous. That's what he's calling for. And then finally, <laughs> unlike the crowd, we need to be careful that our eyes are not on the cares of this world or upon those around us. We need to see the world through the lenses of Christ, don't we? I have trifocals. And if you have trifocals, you know exactly what I'm about to say. My kids, especially when they were younger, you know, they'd say, look at this, Dad. 
and put it in front of my eyes and then go, Wong. You know, I was trying to figure out which, where to look at my glasses. Okay, where? Oh, oh, yes. It was instant headache. <laughs> Our eyes need to be focused on the Lord. We start looking to the world or to ourselves. Our lives are going to start wagging out. Wong. Look to the Lord. Look to what he has. <laughs> the hymn that we referred to earlier, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, was written by Helen Limmel. She became a widow very early in her marriage and was left with two boys. She taught voice at such schools as Moody Bible Institute and Biola, if you know the school out in California. Fine schools. And she wrote, in fact, more than 500 hymns, but the one that we all know best is most likely Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Ironically, the words were rather prophetic for her because a little bit later in life, she became blind. And her new husband didn't want a blind wife, so he left her. Think about these words for a minute. Oh soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. The second verse, through death into life everlasting he passed and we follow him there. Or Over our sin no more hath dominion for more than conquerors. We are. And then that verse, turn, of course, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. Miss Helen was always composing hymns even in her latter years. A couple that took care of her said she was always sitting at her bedside with a plastic keyboard composing and writing music. And she said, one day, God is going to bless me with a great heavenly keyboard. <laughs> she said, I can hardly wait. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't look to the left or to the right. And like this blind man, throw off the cloak, follow and praise his name. <laughs> Father, what a glorious scene nestled here in Luke 18. It's a reminder that we bring nothing to the table. We too are beggars before an omnipotent, all-knowing God. Like the rich young ruler, it's easy to be deceived and be distracted in the things of this world and forget, no, <laughs> we bring nothing to the table. Father, we cry out, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our country. Lord, have, have mercy among the people living in this area. And Lord, for those of us who have accepted your son as our savior, we understand that mercy. We understand the salvation and the restoration of spiritual eyesight. Or may we not take that for granted. For some in this room, that's foreign. Oh, they know a lot about Jesus, your son, but they've never embraced him and understood what it means to claim him as Lord. And so, Father, I pray today... 
if there's one out there that doesn't know you, that they would bend their knee and they would have a restoration of sight. In the name of the great healer, the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, Jesus.